This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand and untangle the interesting and complicated practice of Mormon plural marriage. Today, I'm really excited to talk about two women in particular that have really different experiences, but I think illustrate an important time in Mormon polygamy, the time of the federal legislation and prosecutions, or persecutions if you're a Mormon. This is an interesting time in Mormonism because it really sort of has this old flavor, Latter-day Saint uh, persecution complex with it, you know, us against the world, us against the government. And it also has this sort of new new fusion of uh, things that you'll see in Mormon fundamentalism. It's also... It's also a critical turning point in the LDS church's history. So it's a really important time to talk about. I'm going to be talking about two women from very different backgrounds and uh, hopefully tell their stories about how the Mormon underground affected them. When I use the term underground, I'm not using that to necessarily conflate it with the Underground Railroad that refers to sort of the transatlantic slave trade. This is not, this is not what I'm talking about. This is a Mormon term. The term that they use would go to be, to go underground. And, uh, that's an important distinction. I also want to talk about something that we haven't talked about yet. And it's a huge part of Mormon history, but it's often overlooked because it's just sort of literally part of so many Mormons DNA. And that is the Scandinavian Mormons. Now we could devote a whole year talking about the issues with Scandinavian Mormons because it's a huge part of Mormon history. And unfortunately, a lot of the stories that we do have, there are so many great, great histories of Mormon pioneers, but they are more often than not English-speaking women because their diaries are the easiest to translate and we have the most records. And so unfortunately, we, we don't have a lot of contemporary history on a lot of Scandinavian women or Native women or um, women in Mexico. So, uh, and, and of course, some of that is coming out. But I did want to tell the story of the Scandinavian pioneers because I am of Scandinavian descent. And so just a little background, and of course, this is a really general background on the Scandinavian Mormons. A lot of this work is by William Mulder, and I will 
thing to it. But basically what happens is there are already Scandinavians coming over from Europe, sort of this promise of America. America was this, this idea of forget your poverty and come to America and live this American dream. So this was already happening. Mormonism didn't really start this, but Mormonism actually really like ramped it up. So there are people, I mean, there were Scandinavian members that were joining the church in Nauvoo. We, we do know of a few that were already in Nauvoo, and they were helping, and they were involved. Joseph Smith would get really interested in some of the Scandinavians that were around him. And I'm going to quote William Mulder right here. He says, quote, The earliest Scandinavian converts to Mormonism were not one in Europe, but in the United States, among the Norwegian immigrants in the storied settlements at Fox River in Illinois, Sugar Creek in Iowa, and Koshkonig in Wisconsin Territory, within missionary striking distance of Nauvoo the rising capital, Mormon capital of the 1840s. Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, hoped to recruit missionaries for Scandinavia among them who would lead their countrymen to settle in and around Nauvoo to strengthen Zion, as converts from the British Isles were already doing. By 1843, the Norwegian Mormon congregation at Fox River numbered 58, including several of the famous, quote, Sloop Fox of 1825, Nude Peterson of Hardinger, immigrant of 1837, better known in Utah history as Canute, who would be one of the early settlers of Lehigh, and Agata Sondra Yesendotter, 18 and also an immigrant of 1837 from Telemarkin, who, as Ellen Sanders Kimball, wife of Brigham Young's counselor Heber C. Kimball, would be one of the three women in the first company of Mormon pioneers to enter the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Norwegian congregations sprang up in Iowa and Wisconsin as well, and by 1845, one Lutheran minister lamented that nearly 150 Norwegians in the western settlement, some 80 in the Fox River colony alone, had followed the, quote, Mormon delusion. And it's interesting because Lutheran churches are going to be sort of obsessed and kind of racing Mormonism for these Scandinavian converts, and they follow them all the way to Utah. So uh, after Joseph dies, Brigham Young doesn't forget this, he... He called the Norwegian branch at Fox River in October, that same year that Joseph Smith died, and laid out a city and called it Norway and dedicated it to the Lord. And Brigham Young declared it would be the gathering place for the Scandinavian people and that they could build a temple there. But of course, we know this doesn't happen. The Scandinavian and Norwegian converts would have to abandon that dream as all the saints abandoned Nauvoo. A hundred Norwegian Mormon families were ready to go west with Brigham Young, but the dissenter James J. Strang threw them into confusion when he did his sort of counterclaims of secession, and we, we see that happening with the secession crisis. Most of uh, those saints in Norway eventually joined the reorganization under Joseph Smith III and stayed up with the reorganized LDS church, but some did come across as Brighamites. And then, of course, we start seeing missionaries get sent out, right? And this, of course, happens a little bit later and all over Scandinavia. Now, it's it's fascinating because already, like, there, there was a stigma of immigrants coming over from Europe. There was this sort of racism that was happening with these immigrants. Um, people were factioned into their their ethnic groups and treated a certain way. And Scandinavians were often lumped in with customs as Irish. And uh, they were considered ignorant and uh, poor. And, of course, their language was very foreign on the tongue. But right away, that uh, these Scandinavian saints were organizing. They were writing 
papers and, and zines and magazines and, and, uh, editorials they they were very busy and they were constantly surprising people around them who sort of rooted in the racism was like were like oh who knew these people were so talented out of such poverty right and meanwhile as they're coming west there was sort of this winnowing of the saints uh a lot of saints coming west would be disaffected and they would stay back and they would go to sort of you know, more Scandinavian hubs. Some would stay in Nebraska and some even helped, you know, stay in South Dakota. It would, it would be a really interesting time as America is being formed. Scandinavia would have a part in this. Now, the Lutherans, like I said, were very concerned with this. In fact, as soon as, you know, Utah is getting set up, the Lutherans follow them around to Utah and they produce anti-Mormon literature with uh, books. <laughs> it's called Lock Your Doors Against the Mor- Mormon's Warning, Luc Doran for Mormonere Adversel. So they were trying to say, like, stay away from these Mormons. This is the Mormon delusion. And it worked. Some people, some people, uh, really went over with the Lutheran factions. Again, there was a stereotype of them being poor and humble. And, but, you know, America was the remedy for that, right? It was their, their, uh, American dream. And English missionaries would go over along with some, uh, Scandinavian missionaries to countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and really start proselytizing. In fact, it became such um, a popular thing that there was like 1,361 missionaries that were sent out from Utah during the half century of 1850 to 1900. And a Swedish official complained and said, quote, the kingdom is beleaguered by the missionary army from Utah, end quote. There was, there was so much, uh, people being swayed by this sort of idea and, and they were coming over. Now there's this sort of trope and, and there's a reason for this trope because this was played out too that a lot of, you know, poor, vulnerable young ladies were taken advantage of by these Mormon, these greedy Mormon men. But the majority of, uh, Scandinavian converts were in their thirties and forties and they came over as families, not individuals. And of course, when they come, when, uh, Brigham Young is setting out these different immigration funds. He starts this off really early, and this gives saints in Utah who have settled something to do. They're doing silkworms, and the Relief Study is organizing tithing funds and things to send to these immigration funds. And, of course, the men are setting up these sort of immigration stopping points where people come and... uh when they first get off the wagons, they come, like, maybe it's a barn, and they have a place to sleep until they're kind of, you know, settled and shopped out. And, of course, most of the Scandinavian saints from certain groups would go and congre- congregate with their eth- ethnic groups. And San Pete Valley is, San Pete County is probably the most heavily populated Scandinavian place in Utah. And so there were, there are towns like Ephraim and, and Nephi and Fountain Green and Manti. And those are all like the places of my people. That's what I, we grow up, we go to Lamb Days every year in Fountain Green and the Scandinavian festival down in, uh, by Snow College. So this is where they, they were settling and, there were, there were some interesting things happening there. Of course, the word of wisdom was sort of pushed during the Mormon Reformation, abhorring coffee and, and smoking and tobacco and alcohol. But we know that Mormons didn't really, like they followed it as kind of a suggestion, not really a commandment. And Scandinavian saints even more so, right? They, they considered, 
uh, coffee to be like the old country. And Scandinavians really held on to this idea of like old country. The old country ideas were really important to them and they really wanted to hold on to that heritage. So they were setting up by 1852 Vedvarende Emigrations Fund. Uh, it's a, re- it was a revolving fund designed as a branch of the church wild Churchwide Perpetual Emigration Fund, or the PEF, and they were translating doctrine, and they were they were trying to get these communities organized. And it was sort of like in this, you know, at this time it was in these co-ops, right? Like Brigham Young was doing. So people would come, give what means they have, and sort of be put to work. And often if you were a young girl, you were put in someone's house to work. And this is where we see one of my ancestors. Now, this is someone I, I've been wanting to tell her story for a while, and it's frustrating to me that I, that I don't. I've been trying to, um, for years and years and years, uh, track down her family history, and I'm learning how to read some Danish records, but it's really, really difficult. And the way that Danish people were named and named themselves is also very interesting and difficult. Um, it doesn't follow the sort of English surnames. And so a lot of the names look the same and finding the records are very difficult. So I want to talk about Eliza Jacobson. She would have, she was Norwegian and she was born in 1852. So she was born in the same year that this immigration fund is set up over in Utah. So she's born and she grows up in a sea town by the sea. And, and I just picture her like running wild with her, with her brother others along the ocean. She liked to collect shells and uh, run along the beach and she was happy and and she liked her life there. And then the, the Mormon missionaries came in at 13, she was converted. It would take her about 10 years until she was able to come and gather with the saints. But we do know her and her brother Christian left. Um, and of course, all of these people, like the, at first the, the Scandinavians wanted to buy their own boat but missionaries soon discovered that chartered boats would be the best. So, of course, she comes on a chartered boat, and you can imagine the sort of romanticism in not only coming to America, but coming to Zion. So she comes, and her and her brother are put in the Dolls family, which was um, a Scandinavian family in West Jordan, and she is put to work helping sort of pay off her transportation to get her there. And this is what the immigration fund did. It was sort of like this indenture deal where they would come and work off their their funds. And meanwhile, at the time, there was a man named Niels Peterson. He was the president of this particular organization. There were multiple ones. And in 1875, she would marry him in the endowment house as his third wife. So Eliza Jacobson, she comes to Utah and she is in her 20s and she marries she marries this man who is in charge. Uh, you know, he's a powerful man. He's in charge of this fund. I think she meets him in a barn. Um, that's that's where they all gathered, and she would have children with him. We know that it was very difficult for his first wife specifically. Niels was married to two other women in 1852, the year that Eliza was born. Niels marries his first wife, Andorthea Hansen, and they live in Denmark for a long time, and they have this life, and then they come over with their two two children, and they have this sort of romantic, you know, journey to the States. And by the time Eliza meets him, I don't know much about the second wife, but it is clear that Eliza has conflict with her sister wives. They do not like her. They consider her poor, uneducated, and it could be a projection of them because there's not a lot of indication that these women themselves came from any sort of standing. And of course, you have to remember that these 
these immigrants came with that baggage already, whether it were, was true or not. So there was a stigma that they were always trying to fight that, yes, they were good enough and yes, they were smart enough. And there's some great, great history if you want to read about this. I, in fact, I think at the, at the Contemporary Art Museum right now, they have on display some of the really cool, um, things that the Danish people did. They had, they had publication out that was called the Beehive or Beekuben, I think is what it was called. It went for 59 years it was published. And then in 1895, it became church property and they sort of took it over. But, uh, so they were always kind of trying to fight these stereotypes that larger America was having to deal with this sort of racism. So Eliza joins in. She's considered poor and lowly. And we know that the marriage was difficult. We know very little about that, but we do know that at the time the manifesto happens, she would be she would marry in 1875 so she would have several she would have over a decade of marriage trying to get along with these women and from what we know the women didn't live well together the first wife did not recognize her as a wife she did not recognize the children she actually would raise her children to sort of look down on Eliza in all the spirit of fairness I do not know if Eliza was difficult to to deal with or to live with but we do know it was difficult for her. So the manifesto happens and these women go in the underground in a, in an interesting way. At the time, Eliza would have been in holiday. We do know that, you know, Niels escapes to escape federal prosecution. He sleeps in canyons and he rides through storms and he lives through, as the family history says, all manner of privations so that he can't be arrested. And there were supposedly two hills on each side of his home in Holiday where uh, he would hide in. And the children were told that if anyone asked for their father, they would have to say that he had gone back to Denmark. And actually, many of the younger kids of Eliza's children used to believe that the hills outside their home were Denmark because that's where Daddy was hiding. Eliza would stay out on the west side of the valley and they herded sheep for years. And then she lived in Draper for two and a half years. So she starts to have to go on the run like other Mormon polygamous women. So she was kind of shipped out for wherever she could go. She would stay with friends. She would stay with other family members. Um, her family had a big hayloft and a loft houses where hired men, um, would sleep and she would live there for a time. Neil, her husband would die in 1891, just a year after the manifesto. And this is where I think that the, the story gets really, really difficult and sad. He was a father to 21 children and he, you know, was very involved in his church and civic work. And he was a very like prominent immigrant for the time. But after his death, it seems that things went south pretty badly for his family. So because his legal wife was Andorthea, she was not going to let any of her property, any of Neil's property, be handed over to Eliza. Now, there's this complicated thing happening. So not only is Andorthea the legal wife, so she's worried about her property, but in, in 1891, now, even amongst the faithful Latter-day Saints, there's sort, sort of the stigma that's starting to develop against any polygamist that is still practicing. And of course, we know that the 1890 manifesto was sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge manifesto, but it still, it started to develop this, this uh, stigma. So Andorthea, who was trying to make a name for herself, and she, you know, she already really abhorred Eliza, this youngest wife, really wasn't going to have this and saw an opportunity to kind of rid herself from this woman forever. So 
she tries to take away her, her property, kicks her out, and Eliza's on her own. She has no way to provide for herself. She has very little money, but what her parents could give her, and they tried to help her and help watch the kids when she could. But Eliza's mom was blind, and her father was aging. Niels had only been dead for a week when Peter, the oldest son of the first wife, and Dorothea, ordered them to leave their house. So they were kicked out. One daughter of Eliza and Niels, her name was Betsy Othea Peterson Capson, described those times in her family history. She said, quote, Peter had an order made out by a lawyer that gave Eliza three days to get out. His mother and Dorothea lived in the part of the house, so mother's trouble started. I walked with her to grandfather's place, and she stopped and told Bishop Britton where they were going what they were going to do, and he said, What in the hell are you bothering me for? Grandmother and grandfather told her to come out there. They had three small rooms. After father died, Pete was administrator. He sold cattle machinery, and he got the sheep and later sold them. He gave mother a dry cow and no hay. She asked him for a seeth to cut the hay, and he said she could go to hell. There were six of us children, Jake 15, Alma not yet two, and Hi was 13. Pete was going to have high work for him, but mother put his clothes in a flour sack and sent him out to have, sent him out to Bertha's in Parley's Park, 24 miles away. He walked all the way, and when Bertha, Neil's second wife, saw him coming, she knew they were having trouble. Mother said she heard my father call her after he died, but she was so frightened she didn't answer. She said later she had wished she had, as he might have told her what to do. After the sale of the state, each of the three wives were to get $25 a month. Instead, and Dorothea got 75. Mother moved in with her folks until she could sell her property and find a place to live. Finally, she rented a house and moved in. They put her stove under the trees and took her cupboard so she didn't have much furniture to move. She finally sold her piece of ground in Parley's Park to the Dahl brothers, and each of Mother's children got two acres of ground from their father's estate. She built a four-room house on almost two acres across the road from the old house. Pete moved in the part of the house that Mother had lived in, and later Mary Cowley moved in. Mother rented Mary Cowley's house during the winter and paid $5 a month for it. Before she got her house built, she went out and washed all day for 50 cents. End quote. So according to that narrative, she gets kicked out by Andorthea's oldest brother. She doesn't get her money, and it looks like the second wife didn't get her money either. Andorthea kept all of the money. And Eliza struggles. She tries to do wash for her kids. That's not sufficient. So she sends out each of her kids to work with different families, and that would have been very difficult for her. Betsy was sent to live with the Brooks family, and they wanted to adopt her because of the poverty they were living in, but Eliza wouldn't let them. Eliza would save up all the money she could so that during Christmas time she could send each of her children a nice present because she missed them and they were away from her. But she was so poor she couldn't feed them and she knew that they were better in someone else's home. When the kids were there, they lived on such a meager existence and one time they didn't have any bread in the house and needed flour to make bread. And you know, there's this like apocryphal story of her like kneeling down and asking for food because they were out of flour. And later that day, Jim Nelson, who ran a store on holiday, came and asked if the son would work for him. And so Eliza just knew that the Lord was looking after her. She really, she really struggled, but, uh, this is the part I'm, I'm doing some research on now. Um, as she got older, uh, she, she was, it was, the washing was so hard on her body. And, and the family story is as she hit menopause, she lost her mind is, as uh, 
In fact, I was told by a family member, that's just what happened to women in those days. They went through menopause and they went crazy. So um, she was taken to the Provo Hospital with a mental illness and died there in September 10th, 1896. She, um, that would be her life. And unfortunately, that would affect her children. Um, we have a kind of a interesting story of how these children being shipped out, sort of fostered out, were, were kind of lost through the system. Some, depending on the families they lived with, were really, really great. But there was another woman in our family history who kind of fell through the cracks. She was taken advantage of by a man in Park City who got her pregnant when she was 16. He wouldn't marry her. And, uh, she was sort of this, you know, woman scorned and, and heartbroken. And later on, uh, and her children were taken away from her because of that. So that's one extreme instance of how the manifesto affected someone. And I wish that I had more than just outlined sketches of that because it's, it's family and it's an important story to me. But I do think it's important to tell and remember the stories of our Scandinavian saints because they were such a huge part of who we were. Now, the other person I want to talk about is someone really fascinating. And there's a book that you can read. It's called Mormon Odyssey, the story of Ida Hunt Udall, plural wife. And this is edited by Maria S. Ellsworth. And it's brilliant because she, Ida is just fantastic. I love reading her journal and she really has a lot of great things to, uh, to say about the, the Mormon underground. And I want to tell her story because her story is a little bit different. Her story is not one about, you know, not getting along with her plural wives. And I think that it's important to remember that there's a spectrum that we can't just judge Mormon polygamy by one person's story. Ida, you can look her up online. I think I've included a picture. She was sort of the stately, beautiful woman. Um, she was born in 1858 in Hamilton's Fort Iron County, Utah. So she, she is also not having to come across the plains. She is born in Utah. And another part of Mormon polygamy that's a huge part that we'll see sort of in the fundamentalist, um, areas is this group that would go to Arizona. Now, of course, we've talked about in the Utah period how Brigham is sending saints south and he's sending saints north. And so we have polygamy going all the way up to Canada and all the way down to Mexico. And of course, there were a lot of settlements around Snowflake, Arizona. And this is where we see Ida. Now, of course, Ida has this brilliant, fantastic life that we don't have time to talk about here. So I'd recommend the book, which I'm going to link to. It's fantastic because you can read her story so beautifully written in her own words. But um, I'm going to take you into the time where she she is married. And she would really be affected by the Mormon underground as well. And she just, she just writes so brilliantly about it. So what happens is she becomes the second wife. So again, we talked about this sort of caste system. If the polygamy, the manifesto and the government, the federal prosecution was difficult on everybody. It was difficult on first wives and it was difficult on, you know, the husbands, but it was also more particularly, in my opinion, difficult on the women who sort of moved down the, this hierarchy in the marriages, especially second wives. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about her first marriage. Now, she marries a man um, named David King Udall. And it's it's actually just like a lovely, lovely, lovely story because she's, she's, in, she's clearly head over heels for this man. And um, 
just smitten with him right away. And I'm going to write to you what she says about her wedding. Um, and th- this is going to be in 1882. So she is young. She doesn't have children. She says, quote, Thursday, May 25th, 1882. This afternoon at half past five o'clock in the Holy Temple of the Lord, I was sealed for time and all eternity to David King Udall, the only man on earth to whose care I could freely and gladly entrust my future for better, for worse. Ella and brother and sister Farnsworth walked down to the temple with us, and after a talk with President J.D.T. McAllister, by whom the ceremony was performed, she, Ella, seemed to feel much cheered. Oh, if she could only feel happy and reconciled, I should feel that my life was indeed a happy one. Why is it that, in carrying out the commandments of God, his children need to be so so sorely tried? Today I have made the most solemn vows and obligations of my life. Marriage under ordinary circumstances is a grave and important step, but entering into plural marriage in these perilous times is doubly so. May heaven help me keep the vows I have made sacred and pure, and may the deep, unchangeable love helping me to prove worthy of the love and confidence which he imposes in me, and to always be just and considerate to those the Lord has and may give unto him in a similar way. When he bade me good night, the sacred name of wife was whispered for the first time in my ear, causing my heart to flutter with a strange new happiness. During the night, Ella, being unable to sleep and thinking I likely was the same, came into my room and mentioned for the first time to me our relationship to each other, and we talked long and earnestly of our hopes and desires for the future, both feeling much happier for the same. End quote. Now, of course, if you didn't gather from that quote, Ella is uh, John's first wife. Um, her her given name is uh, Eliza Luella Stewart Udall, and they called her Ella. And Ella Ella is interesting. We can we can tell that she has reservations to this. She did not really want this marriage to happen, but she she was depressed. But you know, she walks down to the endowment house, goes with them, and then. Um, after he, you know, his wedding night, Ella comes and crawls in bed with her and says, let's talk about this. And so, so they give it a chance. Now, um, by all accounts, Ida, you know, is really, really trying. And there's this beautiful picture in the book of her on her wedding day. And you can see it in her face. She's just trying to contain her joy. And it's, it's just a fantastic photo. So, of course, they go to the endowment house, you know, in Salt Lake City, and then they have to travel back to Arizona. And they would settle in St. Saint, Saint John's, um, which was in Arizona. And she talks about coming in to the house the first time. She says, That night was to never be forgotten. In nearing the town, it seemed that all the powers of darkness were arrayed against me, whispering, It was no use. I could not stand the test of going to share another woman's home and husband, even though it was her earnest desire that we should live together. Our neighbors on three sides were Mexicans, and I felt the wicked influence and spirit surrounding the place had something to do with the forebodings I had, but on reaching the house and finding Ella in the depths of despair with no welcome for me, my feelings can better be imagined than described. I cried earnestly unto the Lord for help and strength, and he is the friend that never forsakes us in the hour of sorest need. I felt greatly comforted to see a great change in Ella's feelings the next day, which we spent in arranging things for my comfort, and also called on Ella's sister Anna Riggs, end quote. 
So, you know, Ella sent ahead. She goes to get the house ready, and these two get back from their honeymoon, and Ella, of course, is struggling with this. But you can tell she's trying to reconcile herself to this. Ella is also pregnant, and... uh and uh, Ida tells this interesting story. She says, quote, While David was away from home surveying land at the meadows, Ella gave birth to another little daughter. We were occupying the same bed when she was taken sick, and were not expecting to be thus disturbed for three weeks at least. Pearl and Jake, a Swiss boy who was living with us, were the only other occupants of the house. The night was dark and rainy, but on Ella's awakening me at 11 o'clock, I immediately ran for Brother Am and Tenny, our only neighbor besides Mexicans who soon brought Sister Rispa Gibbons, the only midwife in the place. Sister Olive McFate was also called in at 2 o'clock a.m. A little wee daughter was born. It was the first time I had ever been present on such an occasion, and being the child of my husband, it seemed this little stranger had a claim on my heart that no other child had ever had. David returned home that morning on account of the heavy rainfall and was greatly surprised to learn of the newfound treasure. She was blessed and named Irma in due time. End quote. And, you know, she talks about being up with a sister wife because this little baby has colic. And, um, of course, she gets sick and, and she talks about trying to help Ella. Now, of course, it would not be long until the government starts trying to crack down on this practice. So before she even has children, this is how her life starts. She starts on what's called the underground. And, um... We do know that, that around the same time Ida's mother enters plural marriage, after being married for years and years and years, they take on a really young girl, I think uh, about the same age as Ida, and she says that her mother would never, you know, even, even if, it, if it was difficult for her, would never let the kids see that because she, it, she said, quote, she never let her children know it, and she treated Aunt Sadie for, from the first as she would have wished one of her daughters treated under the same circumstances, if her daughters can only follow her noble example. And I kind of, that reminded me of like missionaries. I know a lot of women that send their, their sons on missions, and then, and then they sort of take care of the missionaries while their, um, sons are gone because it's sort of this taking care of their kids by proxy, and it sounds like her mom did the same thing. So, what happens is, you know, the government comes in and says, you know, there's government spies everywhere and they, they have this raid and they have these, you know, alleged trumped up charges against David. So he's arrested. So of course, what has to happen is they have to get Ida out of the way. She cannot be seen living with the family. So, um, Eliza, the first wife, Ella, she has two two children at the time, two little girls, and Ida's told told to leave and Eliza can stay. And it's this heart-rendering rend- time and she we see so many letters back and forth. And of course she she's just barely pregnant, right? And she wouldn't know this at first, but she just gets pregnant and she has to leave. And so uh Eliza is has to leave too at first, and Eliza dresses in, quote, masculine attire, rode horseback across the trail to Concho, accompanied by Ammon and Wilbury for a guide. Oh, that night, shall I ever forget it? Before starting, I adventured home after dusk, and hastily packing such things as I would need, kissed Ella and the children goodbye for the first time in many, many long days. I felt impressed at the time I left. We got started from the bench back of town, 
at about 11 o'clock p.m., David driving the team to the top of the hill, and when they bade us goodbye and walked back, we traveled all night, took breakfast at the tanks, and reached Snowflake at 2 p.m., end quote. So her journey is interesting. So on the underground, she has to change her name. And she changes her name, and she kind of goes all over the place. So she goes all the way up to Salt Lake, and then all the way back down to St. George, and then to Las Vegas, and then back up to Salt Lake. And it was a very difficult time with for her, so full of loneliness. And she really, really longs for her husband, she writes, quote, September 15th, it opened my eyes to the great power of the adversary, and I realized that I would not be safe to stay with my friends or relatives in any part of that country, and I tried to reconcile myself to do cheerfully whatever David thought was best. He prayed about the matter, that he might be directed at night, and therefore, starting home on Monday, he almost decided to send me back to Nephi, Utah, his old home, to stay with his father and auntie after his trial in November. The thought of going so far from home among people I'd never met almost broke my heart, but my dear boy talked to me long and earnestly of the many dear friends he had there who would give me a hearty welcome and make a stay a pleasant one in the home of his childhood. Of his mother's grave, where he as a boy, he had always gone to pour out his soul in prayer, when in trouble and sorrow, and when he wished me to visit. All this served to strengthen and encourage me, and then he thought that Ammon would also send Eliza so that I should not have to go alone. Of course, she does have to go alone, and she ends up living with his father in Nephi. And she talks fondly about this. She lives out her f- sort of, you know, first experience with marriage, dreaming in her, in her husband's childhood home. And she talks about wondering what he did as a child. And this is how she connects with him, even though he's not there. She connects with her husband through these, these old memories. He, of course, takes her there and parts. And she writes, quote, Sunday morning, I parted with my dearest boy with a heavy heart and started for Holbrook in company with Brother Hatch. We took the train at one o'clock. In reaching the passenger's coach, I had to pass through a large crowd of staring men. But being thickly veiled, I think no one recognized me. I merely had the chance of shaking hands with Pa just as the train started. This was a sorrowful hour for, for me. I was leaving home and dear ones in an indefinite length of time, expected to travel hundreds of miles to tarry among relatives whose acquaintance I had yet to make under the persecutions of our enemies should cease sufficiently to allow me to re- remain at home. So she goes to live in Nephi. She says, quote, I felt truly like alone in a strange land. I knew I had friends if I could only find them, but that was the trouble. Before leaving, Brother Morgan gave me a card with his address and instructed me how to reach his residence. She goes and she stays with Father Udall. And, you know, she lives out this first, this first time. She's, you know, trying to make it with her in-laws. She cherishes the letter she gets from David and he's writing her and she is writing him. And this is kind of their romantic relationship. And so he writes her a letter and it says, quote, if I go to a prison, I will endeavor to do so cheerfully. Who would not go for the sake of God's law and the blessing of as good as a family as the Lord has given me? Dear, what we have to endure for conscious sake and for the love we have for each other in the gospel covenant and the other holy ties we have formed with each other, let us do it in a godly manner, which will bring happiness in itself. Though we are separated, I know we are yet near each other. God bless you in your wandering. I know that you are among kind friends, yet I cannot express my feelings in having you away from home, though force of circumstances brought upon us by our enemies, end quote. And, 
you see this sort of like romantic, like this is their relationship. This is their marriage. Their marriage is a long distance one. They barely have any time together. So you can imagine the sort of romance in this. And um, she says of getting these letters, I was so very much exercised on the receipt of this letter. The outlook was so dark. That night we were all praying earnestly for the deliverance of her husband. When in answer to my cousin Cecilia, Cecilia's petition, she received a strong testimony that David would not be convicted. The good spirit prompted her to open the Bible when the first words her eyes fell upon were, I cried unto the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From lying lips and a deceitful tongue, the Lord has delivered me. Psalms 121.2. This comforted me not a little. Of course, that wouldn't happen. And, you know, he writes back these love letters, and he calls her my dear girl and my beloved sister and dearest Ida, and uh, talks about running from the law and hiding in the trials. And he also points out that Eliza, Luella, his first wife, is really struggling. She can't handle she can't handle this. And of course, um, at certain times, Ida has to leave Nephi. She has to go on the run. She has to use, use these, um, pseudonyms. And, uh, it's really, really difficult for her. She says on Christmas Eve of 1844, quote, Christmas Eve 1844 finds me all alone in my husband's old home. And he has gone to spend the night with Brother B, which leaves me monarch of all I survey. But solitude is what I most enjoy in my present state of mind. My thoughts are busy with the past. I find myself wondering how many Christmas Eves my dear Dade, David, had spent under this roof, a happy, light-hearted boy, ere the cares and responsibilities of life had changed him into an earnest, sedate man. It is certainly the first I ever spent alone. Being reared in a large family, there was little chance at such times for solitude or quiet. One year ago, I had been with dear ones at the home in St. John's. Brother Tenny and the family had spent the day with us. Now how changed are our circumstances. Poor Ammon is spending his Christmas in Michigan prison. I am in exile, while those who remain at home are no doubt feeling sad over the change in affairs. End quote. She talks about Christmas the next day, December 25th, 1884. Christmas morning. Instead of the usual bustle and din I had been wont to hear over the mysteries of Santa Claus, not a person greeted my sight until 9.30 a.m. when Auntie came home and presented me with a little painted tin bath for a Christmas present. I attended a Christmas jubilee on Sunday school in the Nephi Tabernacle, listened to an excellent program. Rain poured down all day. At 2 o'clock, Auntie and I joined the sumptuous family dinner at Sister Brian's. In the evening, went to the theater. Play entitled The Orphans. Star performers Mrs. Lizzie Bryan and Company Pratt. Mary L. spent the night with me. End quote. Her year would be spent like this. I mean, it's constant longing for her husband's writing letters. And as time goes on, David starts to complain more and more. What, why are your letters taking so long? What is going on with you? I'll, I'll just give you an excerpt from, from it. This says, uh, a letter written February 6th, 1885. My dear Ida, it seems a long time since I've received a letter from you. I do not remember the date as I have complied with your request and destroyed all the letters received from you much as it was against my natural feelings. Before doing so, however, I have read and reread them, trying to fathom your true feelings and wondering, as I do now, 
how you are bearing up under all these fears and anxieties a woman is prone to under your circumstances. If I could but see you and talk to you, I know we would be cheered in the glorious prospects before us. I now have a few quiet moments such as I have not enjoyed in weeks. I am writing in the store clerks and customers all gone. I wish I could write my true, true feelings to you, but I cannot. My heart is full of joy in you and the gift of God to us, and I think him for the day we met. Our lot has been hard to bear, particularly yours. It seems we have tried, we have been tried in many ways until we have learned that God is our acquaintance and union. You must not forget to write me often. It is such a happy change. My life is such an active, hurry, blurry one, and I am no criterion for you to go by in writing. End quote. And so she writes, you know, she of course includes all of his letters in her journal. And, um, of course, her pregnancy you know, progresses. And she says, Thursday, March 26th, through the mercy of God, I was blessed with my dear little daughter of of my very own. She seemed so bright and healthy, weighed eight pounds, had blue eyes and long, dark hair. Oh, how proud and thankful I felt. Father wrote that day to David, apprising him of the fact. When the baby was eight days old, it chanced to be fast day, and Grandpa Udall had been to meeting and got his hand in baby blood, got his hand in blessing babies. We thought it fit the time to have ours blessed. I always fancied the name of Pauline, and there seemed no objections to it. We called her that, and Brother Linton came in and united with Father in pronouncing upon a great blessing. In listening to the same, I shed tears of joy and sorrow. My heart ached that the kind, loving Papa so far away was privileged to take no part in the blessings of his child, but they felt thankful that we had a grandpa to officiate. She has her baby, she has it alone, and uh, she's in with her in-laws, and they were able to bless it. David finally comes to see her, and she is so, so glad. He tries to make a way to see the baby, but he tells her, I only have five days to be here. And uh, this is what she says about their meeting. Quote, he told us he only had five days to remain in order to reach Prescott by the 5th of June, at which his trials were appointed. Trials, like he's under, you know, he's has a court date set for his uh, polygamy. I tried to enjoy his visit to the fullest extent, but woman-like, the thought of sad parting so near at hand almost banished the joy of the present. And then she says later, The morning was spent in packing, getting lunch, and some little presents for Ella and the children prepared, and by David and saying goodbye to the many old friends who called upon him. Poor boy, I never saw him feel so badly. He could not hold back the tears every time he looked at his dear little babe. He gave us both a blessing and dedicated us to the Lord and his service. And of course... She has to um, stay with her in-laws. Ella has to go back to Arizona. And, you know, David has to go appoint, you know, his go meet the government and be prosecuted. Now, he, of course, is arrested and he is going to spend time in prison. Here's what she would say about it. This morning, Sister James Ramsey stopped to read me a letter from her son, James at Prescott, containing David's sentence, which was, quote, Three years imprisonment in the House of Corrections in Detroit, Michigan. Brother Bean and Tank had encouraged me that he could not be sent to Detroit on that charge, so this was an extra blow for me. The weary, hopeless days followed I shall never forget, nor shall I the words of comfort spoken by Richard Horn and my dear relatives. End quote. So he does. He goes to prison, and we start seeing the letters coming from Michigan. And, of course, when that happens, he can't write to her as Ida. He has to write in coded language. So, of course, he uses um, her pseudonym, which was Lois Pratt. At first, his letters are addressed to my dear family, and it's very, you know, broad. And then he will write my dear cousin 
or, uh, dear, dear Miss Lois Pratt, dear sister. And so now it's all coded. And for the first time, Ida gets a letter from her sister wife, Ella. And the letter is very kind, sort of official. And she's kind of lamenting. And she says something that really bothers Ida. She says, I really envy you because you don't know how hard this is to be stuck at home while he is gone. And so she writes back and she says, I don't know how my position could be enviable. Um, I'm the one that like can't use my real name and I'm here and my child doesn't even know her father at all. And you know, she, she does this interesting thing now that, that letters are coming further and further apart that she is writing in her journal and she almost writes to David in her journal. She goes to a ball one night and she comes home and she writes in her journal. There was everything to make the ball an enjoyable one. A nice crowd in attendance and the loveliest music I ever listened to. But the first strain that reached my ear sent a chill to my heart. Beautiful music always affects me like an eloquent sermon, either joyfully or the reverse. Tonight it seemed to picture to my mind as nothing had ever done before the exact position of my poor boy banished far from home, and all that is dear, buried as it were, in the confines of that dreary prison. Oh, how my heart ached. I could have no more danced than I could laugh at a funeral. I sat shivering on the seat a little while and begged of Charlie to bring me home, which he did. Oh, Dade, I never missed you as I do tonight. Will this great, unquenchable longing in my soul for your society and companionship never, never be satisfied? The world seems so lonely, so loveless without you. How long will the Lord require his poor weak children to be thus tried? And then she writes a, a poem for him, and, and we see this more and more and more. And then we see letters from him saying, you know, how come you're not writing me as often? And if, you know, I waited for a missionary, so it was really interesting to see this because I remember these, like this sort of relationship through letters. I waited for a missionary before the emails, and so we had to wait for the post, and and that was difficult. And you see sort of these misunderstandings starting to happen. And the problem is if someone says something in the letter that ticks you off, there's a, there's like a three week delay, you know, in, in my case, but in her case, it might take weeks or months till you can straighten it out and try to understand what they're trying to say. And so we do, we see this, we see him apologizing and saying, I'm sorry, I read that lot wrong. Uh, will you please forgive me? And she's writing, you know, harsh letters to him and things start to crack in that relationship. Finally, when her daughter is two, she gets to meet with him again and the daughter has no idea who the man is to the point where the daughter says, please get him away from me, mom. And it's, <laughs> it was really difficult for all of them to live with that. And finally, you know, even after the manifesto, so with our first story of Eliza Jacobson, we see the, the women having to leave separately. We do know that David really wants to try to get the women together, but you, now you have to understand they both have David has been living a really compartmentalized life, right? He's been away mostly. He's got this romantic sort of long-distance relationship with Ida, and then he has this actual lived history with his first wife. So to get the the two women together, they they didn't get along very well. They didn't they didn't like it. Um, it was difficult, and so he decides he has to to move them out again too. So of course Ida is the one 
that has to get shuffled all around. She is shuffled to Arizona, to Round Valley, Arizona, to Snowflake, back to Round Valley. She says she would live a happy summer with them, but Ella would have to return back to their home to in St. John's so the kids could go to school. And so she lives this lonely winter again. She's abandoned. She's the one that has to deal with, with all of this. The interesting thing about her as they're trying to make this work, this is a family that is really trying to work, and you can tell that there is love in this family. There, It begins to get more and more loneliness to the point where Ida's children are saying, this loneliness is getting to you, Mom. You, you never get to be with Dad. And they started to resent it, too. Ida is alone way more than she is ever with her husband. And so something interesting happens. Uh, Eliza Luella, the first wife, has a daughter named Pearl. Now, Pearl was a beautiful young girl, and she was engaged to a man who was killed by desperados and um, because a young man had been deputized, and he was trying to arrest one of them and was killed, and it was this sort of tragic thing. And so and by 1903, Apostle Ruger Clausen visits St. John's for a conference, and he stays in the Udall home. And he asked David if he could marry his daughter Pearl. Of course, this is in 1903. So remember, the first manifesto has come out. And so she decides that she is going to marry Rudger Clausen. And um, in the spring of 1904, when school is out, she gets her endowments out in the Salt Lake Temple on May 9th. And then Joseph F. Smith, of course, presents the second manifesto, which absolutely like enforces that the church is not going to tolerate further plural marriages or they will excommunicate you. But what was done is done. This guy was an apostle. And so she goes ahead with the marriage plans and um, they perform it about aboard a ship in the Pacific coast outside the international waters boundary. His, uh, Clausen's biographers think that the marriage took place in Grand Junction, Colorado on August 3rd. But we do know this was performed by Apostle Matthias Cowley. So he was an apostle. And of course, you've heard Cowley's name before. So Pearl's situation is interesting because she kind of, she is also the second wife and she has to also go on the run. And so Ida is sort of not seen as the legitimate wife in with the second manifesto. So her and Pearl, her and her you know, her husband's daughter from his first wife go on a trip to Utah together and they would live and work together. And so now Pearl is on the underground for this sort of new manifesto and Ida's done this before and they do it together now. And it's this really interesting dynamic and the the two really bonded over it because they kind of dealt with this loneliness and Ida's marriage would be really more based in loneliness than it ever would be in companionship. And Pearl would have a similar experience. Of course, she would live out her days at the ranch at Hunt, at Hunt, Arizona, and she has a paralytic stroke. I want to leave you with one more letter. This is uh, something that she does on her 23rd wedding anniversary in 1905. This is a letter to David in May 1905 from Salt Lake City, Utah. Of course, she's not with them because she's never with them. The letter says, quote, My darling husband, as this is our 23rd wedding day, 
I'm going to write you a few words to tell you how much I thank the Lord for you and to tell you how much I spent this wedding anniversary, which has been one of the happiest in my life. Now remember, she's not with him, and this is the happiest wedding anniversary of her life. Even though I am far from you, I can think of you with joy and know you are true to the core. Last night, Loie and I went to the Salt Lake Theater, and today I have been dreaming of the play, I Enclose a Bill. As I look over the brilliant audience last night, I thought with joy that my husband and sons and daughters would compare favorably with the handsomest of them. All we lack is the money and cultural opportunities, and we will have them some day. I felt very thankful that I was able to appreciate the theater to the fullest extent. My senses have not been blunted by 17 years in the desert, so that I cannot tell a good thing when I see it and hear it. Every strain from the orchestra was the sweetest music to me, and the acting was very good. Then she writes, XXXXX, kisses and loves, good night and sweet dreams, Ida, end quote. I hope that I presented this in a way that you can understand sort of the experiences of these women in their small ways. The stories are very different, but uh, there are so, so many stories of women whose lives were affected by the manifesto. And not just the women, but the children. Each each of these stories had a component of the children. Eliza Jacobson's one of her daughters, is sort of cast out and becomes a ruined woman, if you will, because of the dysfunction of her family being torn apart by this this tension with polygamy being illegal in the manifesto. And Ida's children, her stepdaughter, I would also be affected, and she would go and live a, and live another lonely, isolated life. So you can see that this is sort of like a systemic family thing. This is not just isolated incidences. And when we talk about the manifesto ending, we like to talk about just, or the manifesto being put out, we like to talk about just this piece of paper. But we need to remember that it was more than a piece of paper. This affected people's lives. This affected so many people. And in and in the emerging turn of the century, women and their reputations and their legal standings and their property and their livelihoods, and they would have to change. You could be a stay-at-home mom in, in our contemporary sense and then have to be working in some stranger's home for the rest of your life. We, I don't think we can fully grasp the magnitude of what this, of what the manifesto and how it changed not only the church, but the lives of individuals. And if that's one takeaway you can get from this period of the podcast is to remember that, that the manifesto, both of the manifestos are not just a piece of paper that affected the church and the leadership. They affected everyday women and children living out these lives in the most sort of spectacular and heartbreaking ways. And uh, that that is something that we all need to remember. I would love for you to send stories of how the manifesto affected your family if you have pioneers in your family history. And, uh, and if you don't, I would love to hear stories of the way how the manifesto affects you now. Go ahead and leave those in the comment section at feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast.org. And thanks again for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. <laughs>